Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Scripture. Please open our hearts and minds to your truth, that we may become better followers of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the Lord be with you, and thank God for the reading of Holy Scripture. Today, in case you are not aware, today is Communion Sunday, and there are two quick things I just want to ask of you. If you would just work with me on this, I would love for you, whether you live alone or you have a family or others living with you, if you would just take a few minutes to prepare the cup and the bread, and when we get to that point in the service, you will be ready to join us at the Lord's table. So go ahead and take care of that. And then the second thing I want to mention to you real quickly is that this coming Tuesday night at 7 p.m., it marks the start of a unique opportunity to join a small group. And I know some of you are interested in joining small groups, and I want to encourage you to consider this group. This group is focused on providing empowerment and training on how to build relationships with people who have spiritual questions. And as you know, there are, there are just so many people around us who are deeply spiritual. They have questions. They're not sure where to go with those questions. And this class, this, this group, which is focused on the theme of organic outreach, will equip, it will empower, it will give us the insight as to how to engage with people around us in a very loving, in a very caring way. And as I said, the class starts on, on, on Tuesday at 7 p.m. And you say, well, why are we doing this class? And it's because this class fits hand in glove with the mission of our church. And the mission of our church is to, is to know Jesus Christ, to grow in him, to serve and make disciples. 
And that's what this class will ultimately strengthen us to do. So I want you to check this out. You can go to uh, the newsletter from this, from this past Thursday. You could look on our homepage, even on the slides that were shown on today's, uh, today's service. You will find the information as to who to contact and how to become a part of that group. So thank you. Thank you for taking those steps to investigate the class. So today, today's the third Sunday in, in Lent. And we have been so focused on our teaching theme over these Sundays in Lent, the theme that we're calling From the Inside Out. And if this is your first Sunday with us, I want to encourage you to go back and either listen on our podcast to the previous messages, or you could go to our YouTube channel and there you will be able to watch the services, the previous services. And so far, what we have been trying to say in the series is that we all have room to grow and change. And if you're one of those rare birds where you could say, nope, I'm fully complete, no room to grow, no room to change, I need to meet you and get your secret sauce. But for the rest of us mortals, we all have room to grow and change. And what we've been saying is that change starts from the mind or what the Bible calls the heart from the mind or the heart of the person. And we said that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is the one who initiates and who facilitates that change. Jesus is the source of change. And then last Sunday, we said that this business of transformation and the renovation of one's life, that it is indeed costly. And I think by now you've memorized John 8:35. You remember that? that if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must first deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. Listen, that is tough stuff. That is unpopular. That is the demanding elements of the gospel that not too many people are ready to embrace. And so today, what I'd like to do is to speak to you about the importance of establishing right priorities for your life the priorities for your life. We're all trying to establish priorities in areas of our lives, right? Whether it is around physical health, whether it is the priority of quality time with family, developing healthy relationships, sustaining mental health, just finding ways to have fun and leisure in your life, developing a sense of security, whether about yourself or your living, your living circumstances, strengthening your finances, developing self-improvement. Many, many people have various priorities. And the wonderful thing about setting priorities for one's life is that I think it's a powerful, purposeful way to live. Because what priorities do is that they help us to overcome things like procrastination and distraction and loss of focus. Priorities will, will guide you in life's decisions and it will keep you on track. And I can still remember as a very young pastor and I had just gotten married and I had a hard time trying to figure out what is number one, what is number two, what's number three, what, what are the most important things in my life? How do I order my life? And I remember very distinctly wrestling with that and by the grace of God, I learned to set my priorities, and I want to underscore my priorities in the following ways. Number one, I figured out that if I'm going to have a meaningful life, my number one priority 
is my relationship with God. And then I was able to figure out that my number two priority then is my relationship to Judith. And I know for some of you that sounds crooked. But I figured out that if I learn how to love and cherish God, it's going to be, it will enable me to love and cherish my wife. And I figured out that number three priority in my life is my relationship as a father to my children. And then number four priority in my life is my calling to serve as a pastor. Now, if I had more time, I could then tell you why I have set these big, and we'll use the word big rocks, in my life. Franklin Covey, years ago I read his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Habit number three is where he talks about setting that big rock or big rocks in your life, putting them in place. And he says the other things in your life will fall in line. Setting these priorities early in life gave me structure. To this day, they give structure, they give order, they give focus, they give a pathway to commitment every day of my life. Today's reading then, you may not realize it, is about priority. Getting the big rocks in place, and without them, things quickly fall apart. Now, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple during that last week of his life before he goes to the cross. But here in John's Gospel, Jesus goes to the temple at the beginning, at the front end of his public ministry. And the scholars that I read are so undecided as to why this seeming discrepancy. Some people think that there might have been two cleansing of the temple, and I, I tend to agree with that. It is quite possible that Jesus did an early and a latter cleansing of the temple. And, and, and the other thing I think, it has everything to do with how the author wants to use the story in, in telling the life of Jesus. But I think what's important for us this morning is that whether you're reading about the cleansing of the temple from the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or you're reading about the cleansing of the temple from John's gospel, as we're, we're hearing it this morning, the important thing is that the stories are essentially the same. And so here's my first question as I've been reading this text is, what exactly did Jesus do? According to our reading, Jesus and his disciples left Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and he traveled south for about 66, 67 miles to go to Jerusalem for Passover, or Pesach, which is the Jewish people's freedom festival. For almost 3,500 years, Jewish people all over the world have taken time to observe this significant central Passover event where they look back on history and thank God for delivering them from bondage in Egypt for all those years. That is not myth, that is a historical fact. And Jesus went to Jerusalem, went into the temple on Passover to observe that Jewish festival. And when Jesus goes into the temple, instead of hearing the sounds of prayer and worship and adoration and sacrifice being offered to God, when Jesus walked into the temple, he heard the sounds of animals. 
He smelled the rank odor of these animals and he heard the clinking of coins and the banter and the chatter and the noise and he knew this was not the way God's house should be used and Jesus was not pleased. And Jesus' response by any account is a very physical and a very violent one. You know, we grew up learning about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this, this uh, child. Well, this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is nowhere more inaccurate and unhistorical than right here. Among the many things that we can say about Jesus, this incident makes it abundantly clear that mild is not one of them, not ever, that we will use to describe Jesus. Jesus doesn't put up with foolishness. And we need to know this, my friends. We need to know this. We don't have some kind of a domesticated Jesus. A day is coming when Jesus promises that he will return as the only righteous judge. And here he is cleansing the temple, but one day he will come and he will cleanse the earthly temple of all the sin and the darkness. The Bible tells us that Jesus is overcome with this burning, all-consuming zeal for the honor of his father's house. And his actions then reminded the disciples of Psalm 69 and verse 9, where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. And to the surprise of everyone, Jesus rolls up these strands of cord in his hand and he begins to drive out the animals. It's a scene of chaos, maybe like what you're looking at. The birds are flying off, the, the cattle are beginning to run in any direction, the, the, the money, the tables with the money, the buckets with the money have all spilled onto the floor. Jesus is just wrecking that party and creating chaos and disorder, and he's throwing them out. And he finally says, stop making my father's house an emporium. That's what the Greek word literally means, an emporium, a, a place of trade, a marketplace. Look, man, this is Jerusalem. Go outside. Don't make my father's house a place for trade. What I found interesting in this is that the religious leaders, instead of calling the temple police to have him arrested, they ask him a question. What sign can you show us for doing this? And I think in their minds, they're toying with the idea that maybe his actions are legitimate. Maybe they were thinking of that passage in Malachi where it says that suddenly, suddenly, God's righteous one will come to the temple. And maybe they were wondering, is this, is this the one? What if it's him? And so instead of getting angry and throwing him out, they said, can you tell us what, what, what sign, what authority that you have to do this? Let's find out why. Now notice when you read the other gospels, when he did it the second time, they didn't ask him that question. They said, we're gonna have to kill this guy. And what does Jesus do? He gives them a very strange and confounding answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And when he said that, those leaders were outraged. And they said, are you telling us that this temple that, had, that has been under construction for 46 years, you're going to tear it down and raise it up in three days? And when Jesus said, destroy this temple, we know from reading the text that he had a deeper meaning. They were thinking of the physical temple. 
and Jesus was talking about this temple. And it was only after he had been raised from the dead that the disciples connected the meaning of his words. He was speaking about his death, his body, his resurrection in three days. So that's what he did. He wrecked that party. Why did he do it though? Well, here's what I believe. Jesus does everything with purpose. Jesus never squanders a moment. There is never a wasted day. Jesus knows his priorities and he knows that his time is limited. And so why did he cleanse the temple? Well, let me give you a few quick reasons. Number one, I think Jesus was indicating that this entire temple system with its priests and its animal sacrifices and the role of the temple as this nexus between God and humanity, that it was now coming to an end. And it would be replaced in short order by his death and resurrection. But I also think he was signaling a future time when the temple would be torn down, when the Romans would come and they would destroy it. And they did it in, in, in 70 AD. But I also think Jesus was challenging their skewed priorities of temple worship in Jerusalem. Because you see, from the dawn of creation, when God created humanity, God's purpose was that God would have fellowship and union and communion with God's people. Some scholars believe that instead of reading Genesis 1 and 2 as this battleground for whether the earth was created in seven days and all the science versus religion arguments that we posit on those chapters, some people suggest that we should read chapters 1 and 2 as God building this cosmic temple where those who are created to live within that cosmic temple, their mission is to glorify and worship and adore and have fellowship and communion with, with the Creator. That actually, creation is God's temple built to worship Almighty God. And I, I, I tend to believe that, that the role of the temple in the ancient world is not primarily a place for people to gather in worship, like that I'm standing in, like our modern churches that really the temple is a symbol of God's presence. And, you know, it lulled the people of God into complacency because they said, well, it doesn't matter how I live my life. As long as the temple is there, I know God is going to bless me. But they missed it. That our purpose as human beings are priests offering worship, enabling the people to live in full communion with God. And so the temple that Herod the Great was constructing, that was built by David, that was designed by David and built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then was partially restored under Hezekiah and Josiah and then now was picked up and expanded by Herod the Great. That temple was a foreshadowing of a coming day when Messiah would be our great high priest and he would restore humanity back to God. And the Lord already had warned the people, even when they were building the temple under Solomon, the Lord told the people that the heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain God, how much less this temple that I have built. So there's no physical building that can contain God. God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. 
And if you turn a few pages over in your Bible to John chapter 4, you will see that Jesus, as he talked to the woman at the well, explained to her that the hour is coming and the hour is now here when you will not need to go to Mount Gerizim to worship God. You will not need to go down to Jerusalem to worship God because God is seeking worshipers who will worship God in spirit and in truth. And the cleansing of the temple was a harbinger of things to come. Finally, why did he cleanse the temple? Because Jesus saw that the priority of the temple was no longer about God, but it was about business. You know, I'm on a, I'm on a ministry team here at our church, and last Tuesday night, we continued the reading of this book that we've been reading together called Lead Like Jesus, a wonderful book, challenging book. And the book describes how God gets displaced in a person's life, how God gets displaced in the church, how God gets displaced in the home. And the writer says, God is displaced by E-G-O, ego. But it also means edge God out. And we can edge God out. And Ken Blanchard says, we edge God out when we start replacing God as the object of worship, as the source of reason, as the reason for living. And we put someone, something or someone else after we've edged God out, we put something or someone else in place, and when anything or anyone becomes more important than Creator God, you have a full-blown idol that is raging and ruling your life. That's why Jesus kicked them out of the temple. He wanted to put God back in at the center of temple life. But the bigger question we should be asking as we come to the communion table this morning is, what does it mean? What does it mean? And so I want to pose this question to you. What would Jesus do if Jesus came to Chicago? Now, that question is not original with me. Over 100 years ago, D.L. Moody, the founder of the Moody Church and the whole Moody Bible Institute, asked this question in a famous sermon 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. What would Jesus do if Jesus came to Chicago? But I change his question, and I'm asking the question this way. What would Jesus do if Jesus came to our church? What would he find? Would he find business as usual? Would he find casual Christians doing casual worship with misplaced priorities, with EGO, where God has been edged out of the church and out of people's lives? If Jesus came to first prayers, would he have to roll up some cord and drive out the business and restore the worship of God? Paul asked this question of believers in Corinth because of how they were living and using their bodies. That's what it means when you think about the temple, think about your body. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit where? Within you, which you have from God. And then this, and that you're not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so the purpose of your temple is to glorify God in your body. 
Are you doing that? If you're not doing that, then it means God has been edged out. So what would Jesus do if he came to your temple? What would he see? What would he hear? Are the big rocks, are the big rocks in place in your life? Are your priorities in place? Who's number one in your life? Who's number two? Who's number three? Who's number four? I hope at the pinnacle, unabashedly at the pinnacle of your life is your relationship with God. Now, here's a shocking thing. Jesus already knows the answer to the question. He knows the answer to who's number one in your life. I love the last two verses of John chapter 2. We didn't read it, but I want to read it for you. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And I have that underlined in my Bible. Jesus knows all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. Now that could just, that could just shake you to your core, make you nervous, make you look over your shoulders, or it could cause you to relax and say, there's no need to put on this sort of religious Lenten face, this sort of hypocritical religious persona. Jesus knows about it already. Let me get real with him because that's where change starts. He knows what's in everyone. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows if you're playing church. He knows if your priorities are messed up. You go back and you read Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and you quickly discover that Jesus really knows what's going on in the church. And so here's what I would ask you to do this morning as we come to the table. And most likely, because I know Jesus loves you so much, he's been knocking at the door of the church, knocking at the door of your temple and he's saying to you, if you would just open the door and let me be your number one, I will come in, I will eat with you, I will have fellowship with you, I will change you from the inside out. But, but that's not going to happen until you place me as number one in your life. Jesus will not accept a second seat. Jesus will not accept a third seat. Jesus will not accept our excuses. Jesus says, you either confess me or you reject me. That's how stark it is. And so if you hear Jesus knocking, if you hear Jesus calling your name, then those two things on the screen is what I want to encourage you to do. First of all, I want to encourage you to just repent. Seriously, just repent. Just stop. You're going the wrong direction with your life. Admit it and say, Lord, I want to go in your direction. Say, Lord, search me. Cleanse my life from all the things that are edging you out and set me free. Second thing I'd encourage you to do then is to offer your body, that's your temple, as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to God. Offer your body, not your money, offer your body, not your church membership, offer your body. Not your physically being in a service, 
And so what Jesus wants offer your body as a living sacrifice, that is the temple. That's the, the meeting place for you and God. Because God dwells where? God dwells in you. Let your body be a holy dwelling place for the living God. And then what I would encourage you to do once you've gotten those two things in place then is to say, Lord, I want to know your will through your word. That's why the Bible is so central to a transformed life. Because once God is number one in your life, then you say, Lord, speak to me, show me. And the Lord says, start reading my word. My voice is going to come to you from my word. My wisdom is going to come to you from my word. You're going to know what to do from my word. And then pray. Pray every day. Ask the Savior to help you. We're going to pray that prayer in a moment. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Ask Jesus to help you. Say it, Jesus. Jesus, change my life so I can be your loving and obedient servant. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's children say, Amen.